From Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Move that. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we are so thankful for the moments that we get to share together this morning. We're thankful that we get to be um, together this morning. Thanks for your invitation to to be with you. Thanks for your word. And um, God, this morning, we don't need more information. I don't even know if I have anything new to offer this morning, but God, we, we desperately just ask for your presence to be with us. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to take these ordinary, average moments Um, And just meet with us, speak to us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, open our hearts to receive you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, my name's Cam. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to. And um, I want to start with uh, what I would say. I'm going to ask you a question. What's the greatest love movie of our generation? There's one right answer. They know it. Let's go. The Notebook. Amen. Amen. If you have not seen The Notebook, you don't know love, you know? I'm just kidding. If you haven't read the Bible, you don't know love. That's what I meant. Um, but The Notebook, oh, man, what a story, right? We love, I love rom-coms, extra rom, you know, hold the com, that's fine. I love The Notebook, okay? And there's this scene in The Notebook that's gotten really famous, really popular. It's like a, it's like a meme, you know? You guys know which one I'm talking about, the scene? They don't know? What do you want, right? Yeah, you know, we know. There's the, there's in, in, the, in the movie, Ryan Gosling, I don't know the characters' names, I only know the actors, but Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, right? It's a classic love story. They, they fall in love, they're just young love, you know, we never understand it, but they, they, they have it, it's the young love. But classic, he's like a little bit rough around the edges, so her, her dad doesn't really, her parents don't really vibe with him, they don't really like Ryan Gosling. Some circumstances happen and their love, they end up splitting up for a while, he, he goes to war and they come back and he... Um, she ends up actually with another guy. They're engaged. They're in love, maybe. I don't know. But she likes his security and his safety. But then Ryan Gosling comes back onto the scene and they hit it off and they're back. They're rekindling their love. They're back together. And there's this moment that she has this fork in the road, you know? And Ryan Gosling, the scene, the beautiful scene, he looks at her and he says, What do you want? What do you want? She has to decide between this guy and that guy. And he says, what do you actually want? 
And it's a funny meme most of the time, but it's actually really strategic if you think about it, right? Because he knows that if she dug deep enough into what she actually wants, it's him. He, he knows that. So it's a strategic question. It's beautiful, powerful, whatever, but it's actually great strategy. What do you want? What do you want? It also highlights like our propensity and tendency to actually live and do life not in alignment with what we actually want. That we can do things and say things and, and go about our life not in alignment with what we actually want. So this morning, I actually just want to ask you, what do you want? What do you actually want? What do you really desire in your life? Because underneath everything, we are creatures of desire. We have core things that we want, that we long for. And then we base our lives and what we do at 5 p.m. on a Tuesday based on that core longing of what we actually want. And a lot of the time, if we're honest, we actually don't know what we really want, you know? I remember I, I, was a, I, I had one goal, one dream as a kid. I wanted to play Division I basketball, you know? And I had one offer to play at the Air Force Academy. And if you've known me for like more than seven seconds, you know, Cam, that was not it, bro, right? But I had this dream, right? Like I just wanted to play Division I basketball. Me and my dad, when we were like eight years old, they'd just look across the little bottom line ticker and he was like, Cam, wouldn't it be amazing if you just saw Cam Michael, 22 points under there? I'm like, yeah, dad, I do. So bad, you know? But think about that. What did I really want? I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be known. I wanted people to see my accolades. I wanted to prove myself to them. And so think about the silliness of this. I let them shave my head. I carried a backpack in my left hand for a whole year. I didn't wear civilian clothes. Like I didn't wear them for a whole year so that I could see maybe have the slight potential, probably not <laughs> see my name run across the ticker and say, I'm worth something. But we all do that, right? We have some core desire that we, that we chase after and we pursue, but we don't really know what it is most of the time. Kurt Thompson, he's a psychologist. He says this, he says, my desire is not so much for an object. He said, but it's for a condition of my reality. He's saying, you don't just want things, but what you want is something far deeper than that. Like we don't just want a good job that pays well, but what we really want is to feel safe and secure. We don't just always want a dating relationship, but we want this feeling of being wanted and chosen. And we want to feel like we matter. Or here's one. This one, this might catch you off guard a little bit. We don't actually post stuff on Instagram to update our family and friends on our life. Right? Some of you might, you're using it wrong. Okay. But we do it because we want to be seen. We want to be appreciated. We want to be liked and loved. We don't just want promotions or to move up or to get a title or a new, a new job, but we want power. We want authority. We want, we want to matter. And the truth is that these deep desires, they influence us far more than we realize. They are what end up shaping our being and at the core of actually who we are. Thomas Merton, he says this, your life is shaped by the end that you live for. You are made in the image of what you desire. So your life trajectory, like where you're going and the fruit of it, the peace, the joy, or the lack thereof is found on what you live for. And if you have disordered desires, you will have a disordered life. And I mean, that's where we're like all tempted to go super Pharisee on them, right? Like, that's right. 
what I thought, desire is bad, right? Ambition, bad. My need to feel wanted, cut it out. How are you doing spiritually, bro? You know, just trying to die to my desires. Like, oh, amen, bro, I'll pray for that, right? That's what we do. And that's fine, except for Jesus, you know? Can I Jesus juke you this early in the sermon? Is that all right? Can we go there? Except for Jesus, right? This is, this is fascinating, right? And the very first words in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, you know what he says? What do you want? John, in all, in all, of, in all the time he spent with Jesus, the very first words that he thought were worth highlighting were this, what are you seeking? What do you want? Underneath all of it, what are your real desires? Jesus bursts into the scene, and that's the first words that he says. Jesus actually invites us to name our longings, to name our desires. He doesn't charge us to suppress them or even die to them. I mean, what does that say about God? That more than your performance, more than your obedience or your behavior or your theological insights, what God wants more than anything else is your heart's. He doesn't want to suppress your desires, but he wants to meet them, right? Jesus, almost in the same strategy as Ryan Gosling. Maybe I should compare Ryan Gosling to G, I don't know. Um, but in almost the same strategy, right? He asks the question because he knows if you dig deep enough and long enough, you will realize that what you really want underneath of it is him. What you long for is Jesus. See this desire to feel secure God made you to feel safe and secure in his love and his provision for you. The the desire to be wanted is met in Jesus who says, I chose you for the foundations of the world. The desire to be seen, appreciated, loved, it's found in Jesus who knows everything about you and is absolutely crazy about you. Even your desire for power and authority in some ways mirrors our desire to be like Jesus who has power and authority to serve and love and bless and give it away for other people. It's all found in him. Our desires are ultimately good desires. But over and over again, what we do is we, we settle. We end up settling for crumbs of security and love and value when we could be feasting at the table of who God is for you and what he says about you. And so to deny our longings and to deny our desires is actually to deny your own humanity. See, because God made you a creature of desire, one with longings that ultimately he alone can fulfill. See, the problem with our desires actually isn't that they're too strong, but most of the time that they're too weak. And I can't help but think of the old C.S. Lewis quote that we, we see all the time, right? He says this, if I find myself a desire, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's what Jeremiah says, right? He says, to the people, he says, you keep building these broken cisterns when you have access to living water. The desire to drink is obviously a good one, but he's saying the, 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 the cisterns are not the right source, bro. They're broken. They don't work. And that ultimately is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is ultimately our good desires turned inward instead of allowing God to meet those desires. It's trying to meet my deep need with my own resources, and that never works. The desires aren't the problem, but the solution, the way that we get to the solution is where we miss it. It's where we fall short. That's where the problem lies. But hear me this morning, okay? This is not a sermon that says, stop doing that and do this, right? Because newsflash, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I know that. God can meet all my needs. That's not, that's not necessarily new information that I'm bringing to you this morning. 
But the problem is, is that we know it in our head, but we don't allow it to get into our hearts. And so often we end up just focusing on the fruit of our lives, the good or the bad fruit, whether it's our peace or our anxiety or our joy or our frustration and anger. And we just focus on the fruit and we don't take the time to dig deep enough to get into the roots. And the practice and the process and the type of prayer that we're going to be talking about this morning is the prayer, the thing that can dig deep enough to get to the root. What we call that here at Trinity in in church history forever has called it contemplative prayer. And contemplative prayer is really core to our DNA. It's, It's slowing down enough to contemplate, to consider the state of your life, your heart, and your soul with God. An old desert church father, Theophilin the Recluse, that's his name. Like, what a name. That sounds like they were making fun of him. And then he's just like, yeah, that's who I am. Like, I'm cool with that. The Recluse. Like, if your name is the Recluse, I don't know, bro. Theophilin the Recluse. But he says this, it's beautiful. He says, really, to pray is this. It's to descend with the mind into the heart. It's to stand before the face of God, ever-present, all-seeing within you. And that is exactly what David does in Psalm 139, right? He prays this. He says, God, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. David starts with proclaiming truth with his mind, right? He doesn't start by listening to himself, but he actually starts by preaching to himself. He's saying, God, you've searched me. You know me. You don't just know everything, but you know everything about me. You're not just everywhere but you're everywhere with me. You're not just the creator God who made the heavens and the earth, but you are also the creator God who created me. You know, when I stand up, you know, when I go to bed, you know, all the actions, you know, everything I do every single day, you know, my steps, you know, my thoughts, the good ones, the bad ones, the ones I'm ashamed of and the ones I'm proud of, you know, my desires. God, you know what I really want. Strip it all away. And you know me better than I know myself. He says, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Contemplative prayer, it starts with us acknowledging God's knowledge. Not just that he knows and understands everything, but that he knows and understands you. That no one knows you better than God knows you. And that includes you. Right? We read this earlier, but it says that even in our mother's womb, God, he he, he formed us. He knew us. And he knows how many hairs are on your head, the weird birthmarks you have, the gaps in your teeth, the personality that you bring to the table that's different than basically anybody else's. He knows it all. And that's where contemplative prayer starts and it can't happen without it. And one of the things that tends to kill that is shame, right? Shame is ultimately us hiding ourselves from God and even ourselves. It's the parts that we are embarrassed to bring to the table in conversation with people. And when we sit in our car in dead silence that rises up, that we want to turn the music up just a little bit louder so I don't have to consider and think about what's actually going on inside of me. Shame. But David says that's actually not even possible. (laughs) You can't actually hide yourself from God, just so you know, right? He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Verse 11, he says, surely the darkness will hide me. He's talking to himself, right? 
and the light will become night around me. But then he says this, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. I mean, isn't that amazing? Even in your darkest moments, the darkest night in your own soul, the, start, the parts that you just feel like there is nothing there, it says that God is with you. The God of light still surrounds you. You can't outrun him. You can't avoid him. He has a love and a persistence that won't quit and will never run out, right? Psalm 23 has this beautiful line where he says, surely the goodness, surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I used to think about that like it was like a cartoon and there's like a cloud above my head. And it's just like goodness and mercy, like wherever I go, like it's just there, right? But really what that means is that your goodness and mercy will hunt me down. It will chase after me. It will literally follow me wherever I go, like a stalker, like wherever I'm at, it's just there because God is persistently pursuing you and you can't avoid him. Even in all of our efforts to run away, he's still there. And so David, he acknowledges the truth of God knowing him. And then based on that, he asks him to reveal David to himself. He asks God to reveal David to David. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, try and know my thoughts and see if there's anything grievous in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. And ultimately that is what contemplative prayer is. It's asking God to reveal us to ourselves, acknowledging that he actually knows me better than I know myself. And contemplative prayer, it almost always has to do with our pace and our expectation to actually hear God's voice. The pace of your life, the pace of your prayer, ultimately the pace of your own soul, you have to be going slow enough to actually receive and respond and actually hear God's voice and an expectation that prayer is a two-way communication, right? Where supplication is us asking God to do something. Contemplation is asking God to say something, to speak, to hear him, to listen to his still small voice. And these two things are almost always connected, our pace and our expectation. I've heard it said like hearing the still small voice of God, it's like, it's like a feather landing on your shoulder. If you're in a crowd and you're bumping into people and there's a bunch of stuff, and there's a bunch of busyness and it's hectic, you're not going to feel that feather. But if you're sitting by yourself and you're alone and you're quiet, you can feel every little bit of that feather. Or it's like a, pond, or it's like a little pebble dropped into a pond, right? If it's a rushing river and it's crazy and it's chaotic, you might throw a, a little pebble in the pond and it's nothing. You don't even know. But when you just sit by a pond and there's nothing and you throw a pebble, you just see the ripple effects, right? It changes the entire frequency of the pond. We have to have a slowness and an expectation in order for us to engage in contemplative prayer. It must be slow. It does not work with a hurried soul. It must be done with stillness and in the quiet. And contemplative prayer is literally having a conversation with God and inviting him into the depths of your heart. That's what David says. He says, Search me, examine me, investigate me, some translations say. And then he says, and show me any way that is offensive. Show me all of the ways I'm living life that is not in alignment with you or with who you made me to be. And that is what circles us back to desire, right? Because most of us, we actually don't know our deep desires. We might know the, su the superficial wants that we have, but to know what we really want, we have to actually ask God. 
And so some practical things to do is to, is to pray, is to, is to slow down, to calm your soul, to take deep breaths and to just ask this God who knows everything about you to search you and to reveal it to you, right? And what's funny is I love David's honesty here. I don't know if you caught this, but he said, God, would you try my anxious thoughts? He's acknowledging the reality that almost all of us feel all the time when we slow down enough. The anxiety starts to bubble up to the surface. Henry Nouwen, one of the great writers on contemplative prayer, he says this, as soon as I decide to stay in the solitude, he said, disturbing images, confusing ideas, and wild fantasies and weird associations jump around in my mind like a, like a, bunch, of banana, a bunch of monkeys on a banana tree. Not the best illustration. I've never seen a monkey or a banana tree. So. But nonetheless, we understand that. When you slow down enough, the chaos of your life all of a sudden bubbles up to the surface. And I love David's honesty, so that's normal. That tends to be what happens. But rather than avoiding that, or even just coming in with like some platitude to kind of relieve that, well, the God of all peace will surround me, right? Which is a good thing. But if we just try to put a platitude to it rather than leaning into it, we actually miss all of it. And a lot of it just starts with us asking questions of ourselves, asking questions of our own souls and asking God to reveal it to us. Where am I discontent right now? What am I trusting for security right now? What identity identity am I relying on to bring me worth right now? Bringing our doubts. Do I really think Jesus is worth my full weight? Is he actually who he says that he is? What if I give him everything and it doesn't actually work out? The questions that we actually have that we actually don't dig deep enough to get to. Why am I bored with God right now? Why am I sad today? What am I really afraid of? What is at the root core of my anxiety? So that's why I ask you, what would that look like? Just take five or 10 minutes to do that every day, to, to take your car ride and to just shut the radio off for a little bit and just sit in the silence and just co- contemplate, consider your life, consider your soul with God. Let me ask you even a deeper question. What would it look like if your life was actually in alignment with what you really want? See, because that's what contemplative prayer is. It's continuing to follow the question thread deep enough until we can get to the root to see what is my real desire? What do I really want? Because it's right there that God leads us and it's right there that God meets us. It's actually the only place he can meet us. I mean, isn't it funny? Like we, we say that all the time, right? God wants to meet you right where you are. And a lot of the times what we say that to the audience that we have in mind is maybe the person who's not really following Jesus. Like he just wants to meet you where you're at, man. But we have little grace to do that even with our own selves. That God wants to meet you right where you are today. Because it's the only place he can. He can't meet the the future better version of yourself that we want to present to God. He can't meet you there because it's not reality. God can only live in reality and he wants to meet you exactly where you are right now. And as God meets us, then he He leads us. I think that's what's interesting about how David closes the entire prayer, right? If you you look in that last verse, he says, David ends the Psalm with, and lead me in the way everlasting. See the, 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 the frustrating thing about contemplative prayer, about slowing down enough to actually be with God is that the actual answer or the solution that we're looking for is rarely there but usually it doesn't lead to a quick fix, but it leads to us surrendering to Jesus. See, David says, he says, show me the deep parts of me that are leading me astray. And then he says, take me 
by the hand and lead me. Contemplative prayer almost always, um, it starts with us acknowledging our own waywardness and deep need for Jesus and then ask him to lead us. What started with what do you want almost always ends with the invitation, follow me, right? G- Jesus, he, he wants us to name our longings. Then he says, come on, follow me. Th- think about the boat scene for a second. This is the first words in the gospel of John, right? You, you've got Peter and he's just fishing. He's just doing something. He's just doing his normal day routine, normal life. And Jesus actually meets him in the boat. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Jesus wants to meet you in your proverbial boat, right? Like he, he wants to meet you actually where you are. And he speaks the words to him. He says, what do you want? And who knows what actually rises up in Peter, but, but the, the response to Peter in that moment is not, all right, here, here it is. What's the response? It's, all right, come on, follow me. Follow me. We'll, we'll do it. It's not an immediate answer that we always want, but it's an invitation. It's an invitation of following and trusting and surrendering increasingly to Jesus. It's about hearing the voice of the one who calls you beloved, inviting you to put that deep core longing and desire at his feet. And can I just say this morning, there is no safer place in the world than right behind Jesus. There is no place that you will feel more secure, more seen, more known, more loved than right behind Jesus. You won't feel more important than when you're right behind him with your hand and his hand and as he leads you through life. And it's taking those desires that we have, the core longings, digging deep enough to actually get there and then putting them at Jesus' feet and saying, I'm going to follow you. Whatever it is that you have for me, I'm going to trust you. That's where contemplative prayer ends not always with the answers, but with us surrendering and giving it up to Jesus. It's actually following that anxiety deep enough to say, can I actually trust you with this? All right, I'll put it at your feet. And you say yes to Jesus. As he invites you to say, just follow me, come on. That's the invitation even this morning. And I'm gonna pray here and I'm gonna close. But even as I pray, I just wanna take some moments. I'm just gonna ask some questions and I want you to actually just consider your own soul as I pray. What is actually deep inside of you? What's actually happening in you? Like so often we can come into this place and we just say, we've got a thousand things going on, but can we just slow down and slow our pace down just enough to say, God, what's actually in me? And then even as an act of worship, could we just surrender it to him together as we sing?